This is Our American Stories, and we love to celebrate just about every aspect of American life. And there's no more aspect more central to American life than the car, but also laughs. And Americans love to have fun, and they love to have fun with all kinds of toys. And sometimes they just love to have fun at a comedy club, too. And if America's created something better than almost anyone else in the world, it's the automobile, and it's the comedian. And what do you know? Back by popular demand... Comedian Adam Ferrara, he played Chief Needles Nelson in the Emmy-nominated FX series Rescue Me, one of our favorites in our family, and on Showtime's Nurse Jackie. He's also been on the big screen and the big stage, but perhaps his coolest job has been hosting Top Gear U.S., testing, racing, and braking all kinds of wheeled vehicles. Adam is also a touring comedian. Go to adamferrara.com to see if he's coming to a town near you, and whatever you do, don't give him your car keys. Adam it's great to back. Great to have you back on, and t- let's talk about your life in the fast lane, if we could. How are you? I'm good, pal. I'm just I'm visualizing Sammy Hagar in that rubber suit from the I Can't Drive '55 video because you just you just stuck the song song in my head. Yeah, we can't. We're sorry to do that to you, and that's a picture you're going to have to either get out of your head or get past through this interview. No, that's a great that's a great driving song. No, it right. is a great driving song. Very often, though, they're great songs to drive through. But the actual human beings, I mean, I love ZZ Top, but, I, you know, the, the picture of them in my head is not necessarily inspiring. They're not the handsomest band in the world, but my goodness, they are the fiercest <laughs> band in the world. There's a great story. Um, you watch Live from Daryl's House. Oh, uh, yeah. Daryl Hall. Yep. So the ZZ Top episode with Billy Gibbons, who, another, another monster car guy. Yep. Um, he, uh, he said, uh, he, they picked up his guitar and he goes, these strings are really light. And Billy Gibbons said, I used to have the heavy strings. And then I met B.B. King, and his was light. And I said, B.B., why are your strings so light? And he said, I don't want to work that hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> you bend the string, if you hear that tone that Stevie Ray Vaughan used to get, he had a wound third string, which is, gives it that big, full, rich sound, but it's a pain in the ass to bend. You bet. Um, I play guitar. It's like, I, I, I don't know. Let me clarify. I play bar band guitar. I, like, know the beginnings of every great song. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, uh, and I saw his Cadzilla too, uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, Peterson Museum took me into the basement and they had Cadzilla down there, which had, I'm going to say a 47, I could be wrong, caddy, he put suicide doors on, but, uh, yeah, that was really cool. You know, those guys make, make a racket with a little tiny band. I mean, it, it's three guys and they, they make a racket and there's not, there's nothing quite like a, yeah. a ZZ Top the show. Three guys- yeah, three guys. I mean, that that seems to be the magic number. That's, and our show is three guys. And I spoke to uh, our show, meaning Top Gear. I spoke to uh, Andy Wilman when we first did the show. Andy Wilman created the uh, format for Top Gear with Jeremy Clarkson, uh, and that's the one we know. And we're that's the mothership. And when we did our first season, we did a press event with them in London. He said three is the right number. He said, you know, two is just you know a couple. Four is too many. Three is a gang, and it leaves room for the audience to be in there with you. Yeah, well, the audience is the fourth. The audience is like that fourth person, but three is just you get some dynamics with three that you don't get with two. You know, that actually leads Mm -hmm. me to something, Adam, because you're a car guy, but you're also a comedian. Mm -hmm. And we're we're coming up upon Abbott and Costello, an anniversary. And there was a time when two-man comedy used to be really big, and you had Nichols and May. And and what, Mm -hmm. what happened to that? format did 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 one day everyone say i'm just a solo act what happened to the two man i don't i i think it, well, it came from vaudeville from what i you know from my uh, my understanding so yep. they, they were vaudevillian comedians so they uh then then um tv comes in and right well then they were on radio together so it went from vaudeville to radio 
Um, and uh, their show was so popular, uh, it became, uh, I think once something gets popular, then the format is duplicated. You know, it's like our show. Um, they, they, I think, uh, I don't know what the first comedy team was, um, but I think once that got popular, um, everyone started doing it. And, yeah, I don't uh, think, I don't think so either of the Smothers that. Brothers would have been any, anybody or anything, but together... It was yeah. brilliant. It was brilliant. It was also, that was also what you did in my, I grew up on Long Island, and then that was Sunday mornings. You wake up, um, and you go out and you play football. Then 11.30, the Abbott and Costello movie was on. Yep. And then 1 o'clock was kickoff. That's right. Um, and it was great. And it was, it was full. You, you, you played football because your father told you you had to rake the lawn. So you got the lawn done by, everything done by 11.30 so you could watch the Abbott and Costello movie. Uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, you, you see the stuff that they did. It's still burned into my memory, the... Uh, the, the the writing was great. I mean, who's on first is just brilliant. That was in the Naughty Niners movie. Yep. Um, then there's the math. I think in the Navy when they they did the math thing where he uh, Abbott adds up uh, uh, on a chalkboard. He's, ad, he's adding up math and and Costello has his own math. Oh right, um, right. And then they just start. I also love the craps table um, scene where 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 Lou pretends he doesn't know anything about Joe. craps, and then he's saying yeah. Little Joe when he knows every damn crap variation there is in yeah. the history of craps. And it is yep. it's, clubhouse. <laughs> that's right, clubhouse, box cards. Well, we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and and of course uh, you know him from Top Gear. But Adam is also a comedian and an actor. Hey, let's talk about uh, some of the cars because I love talking about people's people's cars. But right. w- if you had to choose a car for your mom, let's forget your favorite mm-hmm. car. What would you get your mom? One car. Well, my mom wants a. Ca- my mom's always had a Cadillac. That was a thing for my dad. My dad, I think it was. It was an obtainable, um, it was a, a lot of obtainable wealth, but obtainable status. You know, he could, my mother always had a Cadillac. He, that, that made him feel good. It was like, you know, look, take care of your family. My, my wife will drive a Cadillac, he, and my father would drive. That was the good car. Yep. He had the truck, he would go to work, and she had the Cadillac. They were used, but they were all well cared for. Uh, and I remember the first memory I had, of the first Cadillac we got was a 1970 Coupe de Ville that uh, that ugly olive green mm-hmm. and my mother flipped the cigarette out the window and it went to the back seat and burnt out the back seat <laughs> and that, that way that's back the when the whole seat was one strip that long strip yeah, it was just one piece so we, we wake up in the morning and there's smoldering smoke coming out <laughs> like this black smoke coming out of the car is like uh-oh the car has not elected a pope yet so smoke coming out of the car my father came out we put the fire out we took the seat out and we figured out that we can get lengths of pipe from the trunk all the way through the, uh, the, the bucket seat, and, and then it would rest under the dash. So that burnt-out Cadillac became the plumbing truck. Well, Adam Ferrara's got a lot of car stories. We're going to talk about comedy, too. He opened for George Carlin once, and we did a great hour-long celebration of the life of George Carlin here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, more with Adam Ferrara. This is Lee Habib. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all that we do.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bruce Springsteen's version of his own song. He shipped it off to a great R&B singer, as you all know, who did a pretty good job of turning it into a number one song. But this is a Springsteen composition, and he kills it when he's in concert. Clarence used to step in and fill that great stack sax solo. And we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and he was just talking to us about a story in which his mom torched her own family Cadillac. Uh, let's, fe- yeah. let's hear the rest of that story, Adam. So she burns out the back seat. Pop and I pull a seat out. We figure we can get links of copper pipe in and, del- and run pipes to jobs and put the tools in there. And that actually became a plumbing truck. So I took my road test in that car, and my father told me he took me out to practice in the car. And I took so I the, the, he tells me to be careful. He goes, "All right, listen, you're doing good, you're doing fine. Don't slam on the brakes because the torch is going to come back and hit you in the head." Okay, so that's a good tip to know. <laughs> I pulled up to uh, to take my road test in this car, and it still smelled like acrid smoke and and plumbing tools. And the guy looked at I think he just passed me just to get me out of there. And the guy parallel park. I'm like, well, there's no car. Make believe. Just do it. Okay. I had a buddy. I'll only say his first name, but his name was Anthony. His father was a little mobbed up, and he would get a new car every two years. And I always wondered what happened to the cars. And one day I found out. We're in Brooklyn. We're visiting some of his relatives. And he says, come on, we're going to go over to Sheepshead Bay. I got to get rid of my car. And I go, what do you mean you got to get rid of your car? And he goes, just come and watch. And he took it, and he brought it in an empty parking lot, and he torched it. (laughs) And I thought, only in Brooklyn, New York, do people get rid of their cars by simply setting them on fire. (laughs) Yeah. We went to drive my my friend Richie, uh, Richie Minervini, who was the godfather of Long Island Comics. He gave us all our start. He owned the comedy club. And he likes Alantes. So there was a guy next to him had an, had an Alante. He took it for a ride. He was selling it. So we took it for a test drive. Uh, and we're on Hempstead Turnpike. And he comes to the screeching stop. And he looks at me and goes, oh, thank God we didn't hit me. Boom! And the guy rear-ends him in the car. <laughs> so we bring the car back to the guy who was a little, a little he, he knew some, he was a little mobbed up. So we bring him back to the car. He goes, hey, well, listen, we'd like to buy the car, but that big dent in the back. He's like, what dent? And the guy came out. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, I'm so sorry. He goes, nah, you did me a favor. He called, he goes, guys, take care of this. He came out, he took the doors, he like took the doors off, he wrenched the thing, he, he banged it all up, he called the insurance company, he goes, you just made me money. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget, I was watching 60 Minutes about two years ago, and it was the young Gotti talking about what it was like to be the son of John Gotti. And he told this story about how a dentist had mistakenly had an accident and killed one of the young Gotti cousins like a 14-year-old kid. Uh, it was just an accident. And some... On the bike. Yeah, on a bike. And so some wannabe mobster decided that the best way to prove his bona fides to, to Mr. Gotti was to make the dentist disappear. And the dentist disappeared. Mm-hmm. And Gotti got really mad. Like, you don't go killing dentists? But the guy killed yeah. the dentist. And he said that was his great... That was the thing that ate away at him the most, is that, that, that those mobsters didn't just kill bad guys. Every once in a while, they just killed anybody they felt like it, Adam. And I think if you've grown yeah. up in Long Island or around Brooklyn, you've met these guys, mm-hmm. and you know they're, they seem fun until one second they're not. I want to talk about, we came in with Pink Cadillac, and you know, that's, mm-hmm. I think, Springsteen's ode to the car as escape and also the car as a romantic outlet for young people and older people. Uh, talk about your first car, your first great date or love. Well, the Caddy was the first car, and that didn't last too long. Uh, but the first car that I got uh, in my family, we had this thing in our family called the Dead Relative Inheritance Program. 
So my father, my grandfather passes away, and he had just bought an 81 Dodge Aries K, which is crap with a K. Oh, it is. All and the K the, cars. Oh, it was terrible. But that's the car I got, and it was brand new. I mean, because he had just he yep. bought it. I mean, it had less than 10,000 miles on it when I got it. And, uh, and, you know, that was my car. It had velour interior. It, had, it was white. It was a two-door SE coupe. It was terrible. It, but it still smelled like the Denoboli cigars you smoked. <laughs> so I would drive that to school. Yep. And I would park it in the teacher's lot because it looked like a teacher's car. So I remember I wanted, to sell, I wanted to sell it to my math teacher. He wanted to buy it. My father goes, you're not selling the car. Because he knew I would buy something. You know, I'd buy a 67 GTO exactly. and it would sit driveway and leak oil. Yeah. And, um, and you'd wrap it around a telephone pole in no time. Probably, yeah. Probably. Hey, so, let's 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 talk about drivers in New York, uh, and and your thoughts about New York drivers as opposed to drivers in other parts of the country, as you've traveled around the country touring as a working comedian. Well, it's Death Race Two Thousand in New York because the lines on the road are just a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to get where you're going. <laughs> uh, and it's, and there's too many people, and especially in the city. When I first drove in the city, and my first comedy car when I started doing comedy was a I had an '85. Ford Thunderbird Turbo Coupe uh, with a five-speed. So I had a manual transition cutting through New York City. I was like, and that, I had no blood in my left leg for about three years because <laughs> uh, of the clutch. Oh, but yeah. that car was great. I mean, the fuel filter went, the headliner started falling apart. But it was, it was a fun car. You know, it was fun to drive, and I put a, a ton of miles on it. Um, the only thing I, I didn't like about the car is the, that had the keyless. You remember the, the keyless? You had the touch pad on the side of the uh Yep, combination yep. on the side of the door. Yep. Well, after a while, the numbers you use wear off, so it's not that hard to figure out what the combination is. <laughs> exactly. It's really <laughs> stupid. Uh, so, know? so tell me this. You worked, uh, you, you, you worked and are a working comedian, uh, and you mm-hmm. once opened for George Carlin, and we just did an hour on Carlin. And oh, you, yeah. You, you, could, you can't describe to people the brilliance, but if you're opening for a guy like that, First of all, what are you learning every night? But second, what's it like to, to start out opening for a legend? First of all, the audience wants to hear Carlin, not you. But Oh, yeah. Well, here's what happened. I was supposed to headline the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach. It's a great club. Yep. Um, and it's set up like a little theater. So my manager calls me and said, uh, listen, they got to they gotta move you a weekend. I go, what? He goes, yeah, but they gave you the option if you want to open. And right away, the ego kicks in. I'm not opening. What friggin' carnival act? What sword swallow thing? I'm not opening for anybody. <laughs> right. And they're like, who do, who do they want me to open for? They're like, George Carlin. I'm like, does he need a ride? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick him up. So, of course, I took the gig. So, I went on. The, the MC goes up. I went up. I did my, my, my 20 minutes or whatever the hell I did. I walk off stage, and there's this little man standing right in the, in the, in the darkness, right by, in the wings. And he went, you're funny. And I went, and you're Carlin. <laughs> <laughs> And we just started talking, and he missed his intro. He was talking like, he goes, I like that Dick Clark joke you did. Like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no, he, and I'm, I'm just talking to him, and all of a sudden they introduce him. The crowd goes up, and he looks at me and goes, is that me? I go, it ain't me. And he ran on stage, and he was late. Um, and uh, I went home, and my wife was with me after the show, and he took pictures. We continued talking after the show. Just so gracious, so nice. And he goes, all right, all right, kid, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went. I went home and I was elated. I was telling my wife, Carlin, just watched my whole set. And then I realized, Carlin just watched my whole set. I can't do any of that material again. Right. Nine specials. I'm not going to do the same thing again. So now I'm in, a, I'm in this anxiety-ridden thing going through my notebooks, 
torture my wife playing the game called Honey Is This Funny. Right. And I had to put a whole other set together. Oh, that's torture. Um, and, the, and the same thing happened the next night. I did it, did the set. I walked off in the wings. He goes, funny again. I go, you're still calling. And we just started talking. <laughs> so sweet. He took pictures with me. And that was right before he did his last special. You know, it, um, you know it, I'll tell you something, though. He passed away after that, so I'm you, glad I actually got a chance to you, connect with him. You are lucky to have connected with him, and I, I'd heard that about Carlin all the time. My sister was a house singer at Catch a Rising Star after Pat Benatar got her gig. And what was amazing... Oh, you know Newman. You know Ralph. Oh, of course, of course. And, and, yeah. and, and Robin Williams was a sweetheart. He would come in there and work his material before he would go on Carson. He'd come in three, four nights in a row, five. And let me tell you, it was the same thing. Like my sister would sing a song or two. He would walk over and say, nice song. He'd sit and listen to the other comics. He would tell them he really liked them and knew he had some issues. But he didn't take it out on people around him. And it's so nice. You are so lucky to have had that time with Carlin and that you met an actual human being who was a comic and an entertainer because so many of the entertainers, and as you know, so many of the comedians, just have really, really troubled lives. They don't really have time to yeah. encourage a young comedian. But what a, what a thing that was for you, Adam, to have George Carlin listen to your set and tell you you were funny? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and quote a joke. He goes, that's a great joke. I mean, to have that. And Richard Pryor did that for me, too, at the uh, American Comedy Awards. I got nominated a couple of times at the American Comedy Awards out here in L.A. And uh, they show a clip, and uh, Pryor's at the table next to me. He was in the wheelchair then. Um, and, uh, and I, my friend, Mary Ellen Hooper pushed me to go up and say hello. Cause prior to me was, you know, that's what really just really moved me. Yep. And he goes, you're never going to get an opportunity again. And I worked through my anxiety with Mr. Pryor. It's a pleasure. Just to, I just want to shake your hand and tell you, thank you. He goes, I saw your clip. You're funny. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, How great is that? that is just, you know what? It's nice to maybe hit that height where you're no longer competing with other guys and you can just be generous, Adam. You're not, you don't care anymore about other people. You, you're happy to compliment them. This is Lee Habib. We've been speaking with Adam Farrar and, and he's a terrific stand up and you've seen him in all kinds of TV shows. And of course, well, you've seen him in one of our favorite car shows. And Adam, thanks so much for joining us. AdamFerrara.com is where you can go to see if he's coming to a town near you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. That's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men, the core of discovery, along their 2.5-year adventure, exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our seventh feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. When we left off, the core of Discovery were hoping to have the very first of what they called a council, what we'd call a business meeting with an Indian tribe, knowing that the Ottawa and Missouri Indians who lived together were nearby. And the council was to make it known to these Indians that they, the United States government, were their new father, the great white father, as they called themselves. But things didn't exactly play out so swiftly. Here's Sergeant Floyd writing in his journal. 
Monday, July 23rd, 1804. Nothing worth relating today. On this rather blunt assessment, William Clark disagreed. At 11 o'clock, sent off George Drewyer and Peter Crusett with some tobacco to invite the autos if at their town. The tobacco was to be used as an enticement to them. Oh, how little has changed. The next day, July 24th, no sign of the Indians. July 25th, Wednesday. The two men sent to the Otto's village returned and informed that no Indians were at the town. They saw some fresh sign near that place which they pursued, but could not find them. They, having taken precautions to conceal the route, which they went out from the village, the Indians of the Missouris being at war with other Indians. July 26th, a no-show. July 27th, no update to be had. July 28th. Saturday. George Drewyer brought in a Missouri Indian which he met hunting in the prairie. This was their opportunity. This one Indian could turn into more Indians. July 29th. We sent one Frenchman, Le Liberty, and the Indian to the camp to invite the party to meet us. And they crossed their fingers. And this is also the first time we're really meeting this mysterious and mysteriously named Le Liberty, who was one of the French engagés, the boatmen, that the Corps of Discovery had hired for their raw physical help for their preternatural knowledge of the waterways only gained through the trials of past experience, as well as for their superior ability to communicate with the Indians, and often directly through other Frenchmen who lived with the Indians. And that was supposed to be the case here. Here's Joseph Whitehouse. July 29th. Liberty never returned to us. This put the captains much at a loss to know what had become of him, fearing the Indians had killed him. Did they? The Corps of Discovery would have to wait to find out. July 31st. The autos not yet arrived. The next day, Clark made an interesting preparation for these visitors who might never show up. August the 1st. Prepared the pipe of peace. Very flashy. And then the following day, finally, all the men were sure to report. August 2nd. At sunset, a party of Otto and Missouri Nation came to camp. Among those Indians, six were chiefs, the principal chiefs. They fired many guns when they came inside of us, and we answered them with the cannon. Captain Lewis and Clark met them, shaking hands. We fired another cannon. Captain Lewis and myself informed them we were glad to see them and would speak to them tomorrow. You mean the Indians had finally come and they told them they'd speak to them tomorrow? Seems pretty rude if you ask me, but maybe they just needed that sleep to be fresher than fresh for their very first Indian council. Man on guard and ready for anything. They didn't know these Indians, and their man, Lay Liberty, was still missing. 
these Indians could have killed him. They had to be ready for anything, and were, except for the Indians' good looks. At least Joseph Whitehouse wasn't. They're a handsome, stout, well-made set of Indians and have good, open countenances. These are some, let's just say, surprising compliments from a military man and from that more stoic era, too. It's like White House wanted to date them. Here's Landon Jones on what to make of all of this. The men of Lewis and Clark and really all Americans at that time were really preoccupied with the sort of physical qualities of the, of the Native Americans. They finally get to some tribes where they, where they regard it as not good looking. Uh, and these were flatheads and, and some of the tribes in the, in the Pacific Northwest that they were rather disparaging towards. Brutal. Here's William Clark the next morning on the events of their council, which weren't centered on an exploration of their good looks. August 3rd. After breakfast, we collected those Indians under our mainsail. In presence of our party, paraded and delivered a long speech to them, some advice and directions, how they were to conduct themselves, informing those children of ours of the change which had taken place, the wishes of our government to cultivate friendship and good understanding. Those people expressed great satisfaction at the speech delivered. After delivering speech, we made eight great chiefs, to each man to whom we gave authority. To whom we gave authority? You just met these guys, and you're giving them authority? Making them chiefs? If I were one of those Indians, I'd be tempted to tell them, Who are you to make me a chief? I already am a chief. Get lost, white boys. But the Corps of Discovery's cannons might have scared me silent, and it was probably what did it for them, too. In addition, through their gifts like the always enticing whiskey that they doled out liberally, Clark continued. Each chief delivered a speech acknowledging what they had heard and promised to pursue the good advice and caution. They were happy with their new fathers who gave good advice and to be depended on. They are no orators. I answered those speeches. There was a sort of ritualistic thing about, you know, the, the Indian gives a long, flowery speech, and everyone says, well, that wasn't bad. Now listen to my speech. And then Clark gives his long, flowery speech, and I'm sure Lewis does. And, 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 they, and they're very happy with their own speeches. There's a certain amount of mutual ego rubbing happening here. After Captain Lewis shot his air gun a few times, which astonished the natives, we set sail. Throughout that entire journal entry, Clark seemed quite self-satisfied, perhaps bordering on arrogance. Although he wasn't alone in his prideful assessment of their interactions with the Indians. Here's Joseph Whitehouse. It was well content in the presence of their two fathers, which was Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. They said as long as the French had traded with him, they never gave them as much as a knife for nothing. Clark concluded this momentous day with this notation. The man La Liberty left, sent, not yet come up. It is believed that La Liberty, who they also referred to as La Liberty, took the advantage of the opportunity to fully actualize his name. 
to express his God-given liberty to abandon the expedition. And there you have it, another epic story about the most epic road trip ever. Lewis and Clark, their adventures, the core discovery along their 2.5-year adventure exploring the American West. That's part seven. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to it all. This is Lee Habib, Lewis and Clark's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and as you can tell, one of the papers we love is the Wall Street Journal. I sometimes think it should be called America's Journal because I think the title is a misnomer. It makes people think of, if you're not a Wall Street person or you're not trading or you're not some big business CEO, it's not a paper for you, but it is. In fact, my wife grabs it for me and grabs the personal journal right out of my hands, which is where I like to start too, and I care a lot about news and business but we love to talk to Wall Street Journal writers, and one of, our, one of our favorite topics is just how to get along in the workplace and the workplace. We talk a lot about work here on Our American Stories because Americans spend a lot of time working, and working is a really meaningful part of all of our lives. And the title of this story was The Big Benefits of a Little Small Talk. I'm going to start with the opening paragraph or two and then bring in the writer of this great piece, and that's Jennifer Wallace. It starts like this. Anyone who passes regularly through busy public spaces knows that one casualty of our obsession with digital devices has been small talk. With our eyes glued to our smartphones, fewer of us engage anymore with people whom we don't know well. But are we missing something in this loss of idle chit-chat? And that is a superb start to an excellent piece. And Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. You know, I had this, uh, you know, I loved talking people up. I was a, a small talker all my life. But lately, I've been always on that phone. And the other day, I had a little time to myself. I got into an elevator with four people. And you know what I did? I, I did what I promised myself I'd never do. Rather than engage those folks, I just went to my phone to pretend to be on the phone because it was easier than just talking to a stranger, Jennifer. And I thought, you weak jerk. That's what I thought to myself. <laughs> So, so talk to me about, before we get into the piece, what, what yeah. got you to, you know, you're a writer and generally the things must mull on your mind before you write about them. What personally led you to this, this space? Well, it's funny. It's a few points um, of reference that, that got me here. One was I'm a writer, so I spend a lot of time alone. Um, and I don't work in, I'm a freelance writer, so I write for the Wall Street Journal and other publications. So I work at home all day. And I found myself making small talk with people, you know, if I got a salad to go or just finding people on the sidewalk to chat with because I was deprived of conversation all day long, uh, you know, other than with my kids and my husband. Um, So I started finding that when I had these little bits of conversation, I would get a boost in happiness. And I thought, then I thought to my father and mother who are now both retired and how important small talk has become to them. And they're, you know, my dad's friends with the, 
guy at Chipotle who makes his salad every day, and my mother's friends when she's shopping in, you know, the mall. She's friends with the saleswomen. And I thought, you know, if, if there's something about interacting with people in a small way um, that brings us these great boosts of happiness, and I found that if we could be more aware of it, we could harness this uh, this this power that we're unaware of. I mean, I think when you were in the elevator looking down at your phone, I think we do that because, one, we don't think we're going to get anything out of it, and, two, we don't think anybody else wants to talk to us. But study after study after study shows that not only do we get a boost from happiness, but that almost 99.9% of people get something out of that interaction as well. So you're very unlikely to be rejected uh, by starting up a little small talk. Yeah, and I think the problem is that so many other people are connected to their devices or have those headphones on. How do you start a conversation with somebody who's got a headset on, Jennifer? It's impossible. So uh, one of the researchers, uh, Nicholas Epley, who's up uh, at the University of Chicago, was doing these studies on small talk. Um, And one of the studies he looked at was commuters and how commuters, you know, even though we're in close proximity to each other, we often don't interact. And so he he found in his in his research that you know commuters who did interact got a big boost in um, in their happiness level during during that, their commute. And what he decided to do was to give up his smartphone. He he saw this huge boost in happiness. He saw that people enjoyed their commutes uh, better. And so he now uses just a regular phone so that he is not pulled to that smartphone. So there's nothing else for him to do on his commute. And he said it's changed his life. You bet. And I think it would change a lot of people's life act, lives, actually. And I think, imagine writers. I think it actually can change writers' lives because so many of my writer friends say they're distracted by the, the never-ending interaction with social media. Let's talk a little bit about empathy. Before we get into yeah. some tips for people on small talk, you write a bit about empathy in this column. Talk about how small t- talk actually enhances the talent or the, the ability to empathize. Right. I think it's not just for adults, but also for kids. So often in our communities today, we are, um, we're insulated. We hang out with the same group of people who usually think the same way we do and look the same way we do. And what small talk does is it can bridge divides, the natural divides of race, of class, of interests, And being able to talk with people in a small way who are different than you, I think helps to broaden your circle of caring. And I talk in the article about uh, how small talk can actually help build empathy in children. Um, Having your children look at you, engage with the waitress who's serving your food, thanking her, asking her how her day is, thanking the bus driver. This builds, uh, you know... It shows that you don't just care about the people closest to you, your family and close friends, but it shows your children, actually, on earth, we're here to care about the people outside of our little circles. We're all connected, and small talk, I think, helps connect all of us. And so let's dig down uh, for Mm -hmm. people who aren't good at small talk, because I think very often we think of these things as a performance, and we're Mm -hmm. judging ourselves and thinking, well, I'm not that interesting. 
What do I say? How do I, I'm at a party. How do I mingle? I think most of us worry about these things. So let's talk about some tips. There's the 10, sure. five, let, there's the ten five rule. I found that fascinating. What is that all it is, about? It is fascinating. So they teach this at uh, hotel training classes uh, for people who are in the front office of hotels. And so when they see a guest coming, at 10 feet away, they smile and make eye contact. At 5 feet away, they say hello. So it just helps you gauge a little bit of, of what's appropriate. You know, you're not going to try to engage with somebody who's 10 feet away. That's too far. But when they come close to you, you know, in your inner space, that's when you can engage and just say hi. Um, if you're, you just mentioned if you're at a party. So let's say you're at a, a, a party or the holidays are coming up. Uh, find common ground. So if you're there and you don't know many people, ask somebody else, start a conversation by saying, How, hi, I'm, I'm Jenny. How do you know the host? And it will prompt a story that can make it very easy for you to follow up, or they could follow up with you and say, how do you know the host? And that's an easy conversation starter. Um, if you're you know, at a networking event um, and you're, again, alone, you don't know many people, go up to somebody and say, this is my first one of these things, or I haven't been to one in a while. Do you find these useful? Do you go to a lot of these? What do you, what do you, you know, how do you follow up after these? And just ask people questions. Being a little bit vulnerable can, you know, and looking a little candid can make the person you're talking to a little more candid back to you. I love that you say here, embrace ignorance. Uh, why, why those yeah. words? Um, well, I think a great conversation starter, especially for me as a journalist, is I start almost every conversation with a question. I, and I think we can learn so much from people. And I think starting with a question, uh, you know, let's say you're on a, on a train commuting into work and you're sitting next to someone and you start talking and you find out that they work in renewable energy. That's an example I give in the article. They work in renewable energy and you say to them, you know, I have no idea how wind power actually works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So learning something from these conversations, those are authentic conversations when you can learn something and it makes small talk more meaningful. Indeed. And by the way, people are willing to open up when you actually ask them about themselves rather than worrying about yourself. And so interestingly enough, it seems like almost all the advice is to well, stop worrying about yourself, turn it outwards, and you'll be shocked at how people react to you. Uh, What about asking exciting questions? Talk about that. Yeah. So if, you know, instead of just um, one of the experts I spoke to say, you can make only, you know, almost any conversation more interesting by taking it to the next level. So um, the expert said, you know, if somebody says, you know, oh, it's so cold outside, you could say, you you know, what's the coldest you've ever been? Now, this is a risky question. This is sort of a risky way to go. So you want to be able to read the person that you're talking to. Is this somebody who would, you know, one who has time to engage in a deeper conversation? So maybe you don't ask that in the elevator. Uh, But two, is this somebody, you know, who would, who might uh, be receptive to a deeper conversation? And last but not least, it's always the exit. And how do we exit gracefully? You got about 30 seconds Exit gracefully. Tell us how to do this. Exit gracefully. So before we go, I'm going to add this one more tip. So sending somebody a verbal cue. Instead of just saying, nice to meet you, you could say, since we only have a few more seconds, I had one more question for you. And that gives them a signal that it's time to wrap up. Yeah, because the exit strategy is always the hardest. Well, actually, the entrance is hard and the exit's (laughs) hard. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for what you do at the Wall Street Journal. And thanks for this piece. 
Thanks so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. The big benefits of a little small talk. Jennifer Wallace, The Wall Street Journal. And go to WSJ.com. That's WSJ.com to read this and many more great stories. Better still, subscribe to The Wall Street Journal. It's America's Journal. This is Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and our late friend Terry Kohler told us about a story that we just had to bring to you, blind sailing races. You heard that right, sailing match races by folks who were blind. And one of those blind sailors, Walt Ranieri, joins us now along with the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan's director, Rich Reichelsdorfer, and thank you both for joining us. Great to be here, Lee. You bet. And let's start with you, Walt. Uh, Talk to uh, our audience a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, and when you learned you were going blind. Talk about those circumstances, if you could, for our audience. So coming from a family of six kids, four boys, two girls in Santa Clara, California, back when it was not known as Silicon Valley, where we mostly grew apricots and plums and things like that. I grew up with an interesting guillotine hanging over my head, uh, a retinal degenerative disease known as retinitis pigmentosa, caused two of my uncles to go blind, although when they went blind, they weren't even sure why. And then one by one, uh, each of my three brothers went blind, leaving me kind of standing alone. And then finally, 12 years ago, uh, at the age of 45, the guillotine fell and I lost about 95% of my vision in a quick five months, a very tough summer that was, and it has been spiraling down ever since. And, and tell me, you know, what, what was that like, knowing that all that time? I mean, did you know your time was uh, running out the whole time? You said it was a guillotine. Uh, describe that to the audience. You know, so how, how do you deal with with the following. Someone walks up to you and says, your, your right arm is going to fall off. We don't know exactly when, but, but we're pretty sure your right arm is just going to fall off. Uh, it may happen slowly. It may happen quickly. With that information, uh, at a young age, you don't do anything. You, you go outside and play. So I, uh, I guess it was known within the family, this is an X-linked version of this disease. The men get it and the women carry it. I knew you know, early on that, that uh, someday I might go blind, although when, where, and, and if were all still questions to be answered. Uh, those answers, that question was answered uh, 12 years ago, and, and uh, I often get the question, did you live your life with this guillotine hanging over your head in a way that would be different if you didn't have it? And, and the answer is, well, you know, probably sure. Uh, 
I, I, I've been known as the, the hyperactive overachiever type, and maybe that was as a result of knowing that, that I wouldn't have sight all my life. But to be honest, you don't think about it every day. It's like breathing. You don't think about, about breathing. You just do it. You don't right. think about seeing. You just see. And at some point, if it goes away, you know, there's a period of adjustment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite traumatic when it first happened. And, and when, when you were adapting, I, I could only assume that the setbacks there, what kept you going during that interim stage of seeing and then not seeing? I mean, it's, it, it's something we talk about in the show a lot is, you know, sometimes it's a divorce and suddenly you wake up, there's no husband or there's a, a death in the family. And in a sense, this was a death of something, right? I mean, it was a death of your sight. Yeah, I, a lot of people, a lot of people try closing their eyes and they instantly experience the anxiety and the fear it's associated with losing something quickly. And, and yes, uh, that same anxiety, that same, that same fear, that same frustration hit me pretty hard. You do have to adapt. You, you, you have to keep moving. I mean, I, I read a very interesting book written by somebody. uh, The book was called My Eyes Have a Cold Nose, written way back in 1947. A guy lost his retinas due to a detached retina back, but they really couldn't do a whole lot of back then. And, and, and he wrote a very interesting uh, chapter of his book about adaptation and about how do you avoid learning to become helpless. There's a phenomenon in, in, in our society where if you receive too much help too early during an adaptation period, you can learn to become helpless, and that is not a good thing. So, so I, I struggled with that. I, I tried to continue doing things. And it all came to a head one day. I'm crossing the street, doing everything my mobility instructor told me to do with my cane, and I hit a rock that had fallen off a construction truck. And there was nothing I could do. I I mean, I did everything right, but there I was laying face down on the pavement, waiting to be run over by a car, thinking to myself, is this the rest of my life? Is this all that I have to look forward to? And uh, that little spike of depression uh, was a very telling moment, a very pivotal moment in my life, the tipping point where a little voice in my head said, no, get up, keep moving. Because if we don't keep moving, you know, life's really not worth living. And it was really at that point that I decided to stop being a poorly functioning sighted person and start being a highly functioning blind person. And that was that. That was actually that not aha moment, but that was that that catalyst. I would assume, and that was just that turning point. I would say. Yeah, it, I mean, it was everything got a little easier at that point when mm-hmm. it, you know, trying to 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 figure out, you know, if the milk was was good to drink from the refrigerator by 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 doing what by by putting some sort of notch on it or something. I luckily went blind right at a time when a wave of technological innovation was crashing all around our society and around the world. And now I, I just take my smartphone device, I scan the milk, and it tells me what it is and when I bought it. I, 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 I scan lots of things in my house using the same form of technology. And rather than, than, than struggling, it's actually easier. Well, I, mean, well, I actually... Hold that thought if you could. We're coming up on a break. We're going to talk a little bit more about your transition to, well, not being able to see and moving forward, and then right to, well, blind sailing, because that's why we're here. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on this remarkable story. We'll be back right after these few messages. Our American Stories, and we're talking to Walt Rainier, and we'll soon be talking to Rich Reichelsdorfer, and Rich is the director of the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan, and they host the Blind Match Racing World Championships, but we're talking to Walt, and Walt, let's continue where we left off, and during the break, you you said something pretty interesting that I thought our audience would want to hear about. But first, let's just dig into that, that spot we had left off at, which was that, that transition. Uh, just a couple of more points to our folks about, you know, those, those days. Obviously, the technology is really helping you. What about family and friends? Uh, how were they and how important was that? Family and friends were, were huge. First, yeah, I have three blind brothers who, of course, had gone through the process and, and, and were there in spirit and and otherwise to, to 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 help but what i found most important what i found that was critically important in my adaptation to learn how to become a, a highly functioning blind person was to hang with people who absolutely prevented me from learning to become helpless i had some really good friends who would not give me any special treatment they, they, they said, uh, you want to do this? Do this. You know, follow me here. Uh, you know, providing the appropriate amount of assistance is, appro- is correct, but, but don't drag me anywhere. Don't, don't do everything for me. Don't, don't cut my food for me. And I think that was the part that I really helped from, from climbing um, uh, Mount Mansfield in Vermont in the middle of the night with, with a dear friend of mine who said, nothing about how difficult it might be for me, just said, let's do it. And we did it, and that's the beginning of, of a, a lifetime now, well, 12 years of extreme adventures from, from Nordic skiing in, in Sweden to kayak racing to sculling, rowing, bicycle racing in a velodrome, uh, and, and, and most recently with blind sailing and match racing. And had you been up for adventures like this before this, or did this in some way help you to become more adventurous? Well, you know, that hyperactive overachiever in me really likes the idea of pushing the envelope because what I found early on, so there I was divorced from my sight. And yes, it was pretty darn traumatic. Uh, No matter how many friends you have around, no matter how much family you have around, there are going to be lots of moments when you are by yourself thinking about the rest of your life and what you're going to do about it. And that's, those are the tough moments. Those are the ones that you have to get through. 
you got to walk through that dark corridor to get into the large room at the end of the hall because that's where the party's going on. And, you know, for any one of you out there that are thinking that it's too hard, it's too difficult, it's too tough, well, I'm here to tell you, yeah, it is hard, but it does get easier. And there is a party at the end of that dark corridor. Just keep moving, and it's going to be a great time once you get there because what I found is that my walls started caving in. And, and, you know, just sit there, close your eyes, and you're going to feel the walls are going to start caving in the longer you keep your eyes closed. It's almost a form of claustrophobia-like experience. And for me, what I found to be the most effective way of pushing the walls out was was to figure out how to remain connected with being a human being, and that is moving at the speed of nature, whether it's skiing or running or biking or sailing, moving at the speed of nature just, just allows me to reconnect as a human being on the planet. And, and when I'm out on the sailboat and I'm cruising around with no one sighted on board at all, navigating around some audible buoys, I am pushing those walls out. And, and that's the part of it that makes it worthwhile. You know, we were talking during the break and we had, I had mentioned to you that we had done an hour on Al Pacino. And if you remember, Al Pacino won an Oscar for playing a blind man uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And Pacino was asked by James Lipton on the Bravo channel, what was the hardest part you ever played? And he said, by far, being a blind person and playing a blind person. And he had said that when you're playing it, you can always open your eyes again. So merely closing your eyes and wondering what it's like can't ever do it because the blind person can't ever open their eyes again. Talk about that, that story you told me back uh, on, the, on the sailboats. Uh, and then we'll get into sailing itself, Walt. Yeah, so it's very common for people with whom I hang to, to do the little experiment, to close their eyes, to, to, to try to experience what I experience. And it's not really fair for them because, because they can reopen them. And because they can reopen them, their ability to adapt isn't very instant. And, and many times, including on a sailboat, people who are fully sighted, great sailors, world-class sailors put on a pair of blindfold goggles and within 10 minutes they're sick they look a little queasy because they they don't have their eyes to equalize their 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 inner ear equilibrium uh they lose their balance they don't know where they are in the water and the fun part about it is the blind guys on board say don't worry i know exactly where i am just trim the mane and and it's pretty funny because, of course, at that point, they take their blindfold goggles off to recover a little bit. And I can, I, I can only imagine, you know, right now, everyone, close your eyes and, and listen to the rest of this. And I think you're going to experience something very, very unique. No, there's no doubt. And, and uh, you know, often when I'm doing the work, I do that anyway. Um, I've been taught at early time, especially in my business, that if you close your eyes, you hear better. Um, and actually when we did an hour on Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles, both of them had, had talked about how their blindness in some ways served their musical talents, um, and that one loss became a, a, a gain in another particular aspect and dimension of their life. And so let's talk about blind sailing, and then we're going to bring Rich in as well, and we're doing another segment because we can't help it. Uh, how does this even work? Walt, I mean, how do you how do you how do you do this? I mean, I can't sail and I can see. So I have hundreds of people have asked me this question uh, because I first I I lay out the facts. The facts are 
There are three blind people on board, no sighted people, and you are out on the water by yourself navigating around a match racing course. And, and, and of course, invariably, it's how in the world do you do it? And, and, and the answer is simply by listening, by using our auditory sense and feeling the boat, we listen for uniquely sounding buoys that are making unique sounds on the water. And one buoy means we're on the left side of the course. One buoy means we're on the right side of the course. And one buoy means we're, we're upwind or on the, on, on the upwind side of the course. And we have to navigate around all these buoys in a traditional match race format. So there's very little rule change from, from fully sighted match racing mm-hmm. to blind match racing, except for the fact that our buoys make noise. And, thank goodness, the umpires call collision every once in a while when the <laughs> boats are about to hit each other. Uh, I have stories about that. And the idea of being able to feel where the wind is is not unique to being blind or sighted. Every, every good sailor will tell you, close your eyes and find where the wind is because that's going to be your ability to tactilely sense where it's coming from. And where the wind's coming from, that's the engine on the water. Mm-hmm. How you trim the sails is all about from the orientation of the boat to the wind. And it is a little scary. There is, there is a little frustration and anxiety uh, when you're in a match race with another boat with three other blind people coming right at you when the boats could collide. And, and yet you, there's no special rules applied it's to get out of a head-on collision. There are particular tactics we use, and they're the exact same tactics that uh, sighted racers use. And just we have just about a minute left in this segment, but I would only assume that in the same way that we have depth perception when we can see, you can actually hear the spatial relationships between those sounds. Does that is that what happens uh, when yeah, you're hearing absolutely. those sounds pushed out to your ear? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's as if I'm mapping a three dimensional board in my head with the with the sound when I'm on the water. At at any given moment, you can ask me where am I. I'll tell you where I am, and I'm doing so by imagining a giant playing field in my mind and I'm just putting myself in various spots given where I'm hearing other things going on. Well, when we come back, we're going to be joined. We've spoken to the the man who lost his sight and decided to sail and engage in blind match racing world championships. And next, we're going to talk to the man who put that event together because one sounds crazier than the other. And that's what we love about this show, and we love about America, and we love about the American spirit, and that is one of resilience, of grit, of perseverance, and just not quitting, and moving forward, as Walt just told us, just keep moving forward. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's our American Dreamers segment. And we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers. And we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing and Commerce Bank. And what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers. He wanted fans. And he even wrote a book about that. Talk about your stance on customers versus fans. Yeah, we don't even call it. We don't even say the word customer because customer implies a transaction. And uh, what, we, what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends. And, um, and, and we look at it as clients because we look at it as a long relationship with that client, not just one car or one service visit. And we make our team members realize that everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship. Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, you know, I went to Catholic school and they had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. It tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company that starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know those Ten Commandments. They got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff. Yep, pretty basic stuff. And I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because folks, you know, when you're having fun, you having fun ripping people off isn't. It can't be fun. It no, can't be. No, absolutely. No. And, and, and so, that, and, it's, it's, and that wouldn't be that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire. That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that that, that that I think, and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this. I put myself through law school, uh, leasing cars, and I had just oh, found that that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates, they were calling these things money factors, they were selling the cars up, and all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency, and the next thing you know, I know, not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were so, so many of them were ripping people off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time: car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross, and we just make certain that we blow that bar away. Yeah, and I think, Bernie, that the, the, uh, the, the Saturn people were trying to get around that, but yeah. that, that wasn't the answer, was it? No, because Saturn, Saturn, no, Saturn had a lot of great uh, uh, things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the, they just never, General Motors just never invested uh, money in making the car great. Right. So, so had they made a great car, it would have been great. But, uh, but you know, there, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago. So it was, and we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company. Right. But in the end, if you don't have the cars, um, all you know, the fan experience. Some of it has to do with the customer contact. But in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too. Yeah. Exactly. Because that that was the thing. The process was so strong. 
that carried Saturn for years, but eventually General Motors milked that product and, and killed Saturn by not. Had General Motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development, Saturn would be, be the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. They, they did the opposite. They bled, they, bled, they bled the process down to nothing. Yeah, and and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just they can you know sometimes just miss it. And talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, as opposed to twenty years ago. And talk about some of your favorites. Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got again like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, spark. You're not, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> but in my case, I violate that rule. And Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're, we're very. Uh, uh, bullish on Infinity. We think Infinity for, is a as a value luxury brand is a great great brand, and uh, and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors um, after the bankruptcy, they, those are the two strongest brands. I think that that General Motors has is Buick and GMC. So we're very bullish about that brand as well. Well, that's fantastic. And you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you you give away your cell phone number to your to your clients. I, I would I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. So why do you do that? Well, you can't. This is this is I think the biggest issue that that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does, but there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great customer. Every company doesn't deliver great customer service. Yep. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example. If I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give them my cell phone number? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? Yep. So if the client wants to get a hold of me and email me or send me or call me, i got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, well, obviously you're better than they are. And the answer is I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, service means to serve. So I'm here to serve our clients just like our team members are. And, you know, what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, if I can just get high enough up the ranks – I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either. Right, exactly, exactly. So what does that say to people? Yeah, it's, it's really terrible. You know, we had the, the, the head of, ta- uh, of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick-fil-A, but uh, Deanna, I'm, I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name, terrific lady. And she was talking about at Chick-fil-A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out to hire folks, what are you thinking about? What are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to out to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for? Personality. You can't. You can't train. You can't train personality. You can't train morals. You can't train train work ethic, and you can't train honesty. Those. That's absolutely the most important thing uh, that you got. And then from there, the rest is just. You know, some teaching and some learning, um, but if you don't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? How do you how do you know what's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out? 
Uh, you look at their track record. I think you 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 know good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get get into their into their history a little bit. But you can see it in their personality. You know, if somebody's attracted to my company in sales, for example, because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, "Hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal." on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years of that client, that's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to work 45 hours a week, but with integrity and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock and not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, well, my goodness, a nice little empire. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way. We love talking to American dreamers, because my goodness, if you're listening to this, it just lifts the spirits. I mean, imagine uh, working for someone who has the Ten Commandments, and the most important commandment is, thou shalt have fun. And by the way, this is the spirit of American business in the end. It's almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, that's a pleasure. Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I, I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management and too much distance between him and the people on the, on the, on the ground. And that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And, and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have? That is a, that is a remarkably important point. And I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had... Uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and chief operating officer and all that stuff. And it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. So subsequently, I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people working in the store. And that has made a giant difference in the culture because the, cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah. Because t- typically those people don't, or at least in my case, 
they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company. Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in, uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he's brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket, and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, these, these basic rules work pretty well for me. And, yeah, there you go. and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the, the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them, but, boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. Let's talk, absolutely. About, let's talk about the government, and let's talk about first – uh, things out there that, uh, as an entrepreneur, you wish might be different. If you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them? The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at it and saying, how do we support, enhance, and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies? How do we make their lives better? Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch would, I think our, our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves. Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets, and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and the, right. and, and the, and the CEO. And, exactly. Uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees. You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean, there's well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of U.S. Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if, there was, if there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, there's been a giant seismic shift, one flash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. Crap, we got to fix that. Yep. <laughs> i got to get a business in the town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state, still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, if you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our four most important founding fathers, it talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. Yep. That's it. 
And that's it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with like those Tea Party groups and this? And it, it seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life, and they didn't like it, and so they revolted. And I think now the American citizens, Tea Party, not Tea Party, are feeling like there's this big foreign government, but it's in Washington, D.C., but it's still foreign. The state houses, have they can't print money. They have to hit a budget. The local mayor, oh, my goodness, he just has to get things done. And so I think that that gets to your point, and, and that leads me to this franchise uh, discussion. Um, t- what, what's going on? Uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners. And where are you uh, on this? I think the pendulum, the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, it can, it, you know, the, the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where, like teachers' unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. Yep. I think the, when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's, it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely, uh, because that, otherwise you, you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, but the pendulum is definitely swung away. I'll, I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that, that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed, but I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a wall to prove that thesis. Right, exactly. Right? I got to add value to the chain. So yeah. if Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships, God bless them, do it. Yeah, my dad it was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the, all the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so so I'm all for competition. And and so you can't you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. Right. Right. Exactly (laughs) right. Everybody else. That's great. But not me. And, and thanks for taking that position, because too often folks are for, are, are, are for business, like pro-business. I don't want to be pro-business. I don't want to be anti-business. I want to be for free enterprise, and I want to be for competition, because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly. And that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day. That day you leveraged everything. Were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both? I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play. Total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right. <laughs> and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward. You got Yeah, you, got, you can't. Uh, you, uh, listen, you're going to, you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. 
And 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 do you have kids, Bernie? I have four kids. And 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 I assume you you you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that uh, that your folks did. Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do. That absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that no, that's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. Started with his own money, which was money he saved. Started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Penske couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the, and get me if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now? A billion in sales, yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer series, and it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business becoming a bigger business and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys that can change your town and they can change a city, a state, and my goodness... We unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. 